Hello, it's Matt and Becky here from Local Zero. Just a quick note to say before the episode starts that from April 2024, Local Zero will be looking for some new funding to keep it going. We never imagined when we started three years ago that we'd rack up tens of thousands of listens across 130 countries and with a website hosting over 80 episodes. We've also met and worked with some incredible people, including Chris Stark, Hannah Ritchie, Jim Ski, Hugo Tacom, and so many more. And we've been able to showcase so many amazing local climate initiatives from all over the UK and far beyond. But sadly, keeping the pod going costs money. If you or your organisation would like to partner up with the pod as we move into an exciting new chapter, then do reach out to us. You can contact us via our email, localzeropod at gmail.com. That's localzeropod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can contact us on X, formerly Twitter, at localzeropod, or on LinkedIn, direct to Matt Hannon or Rebecca Ford. Finally, to help us in our quest to secure funding, we want to hear positive stories from listeners about how the pod has influenced your life and your work. We hope to do a very special episode on this too. So please help us continue the fight against climate change and bring local climate action to doorsteps across the world. Thanks for listening. Now back to the pod. Hello and welcome to Local Zero with Matt, Becky and Fraser. This is a very timely episode. Fairness in the net zero transition is higher on the agenda than it ever has been before. Now, this is something that we've championed a lot on the Local Zero podcast and new evidence from Citizens Advice has shown how we could go about making sure that the transition to cleaner, smarter energy in our homes and communities truly works for everyone. Today, we're joined by Rachel Mills from Citizens Advice to discuss this further. We're also joined by Murray Brooks from the Low Carbon Hub to share some insights of what they've been doing to promote smarter and fairer neighbourhoods in Oxfordshire. And whether you're a loyal listener or you're finding us for the very first time, please make sure you have subscribed to Local Zero wherever you get your podcast from. Check out our website, localzeropod.com, and follow us on X or Twitter at localzeropod. Exciting stuff. Fraser, you're back today after a very brief hiatus away, looking a lot older. (laughs) Very grey, very grey. Barely a wisp of hair on your head. (laughs) You know, everywhere I go, people say, oh, you look quite tired. And it's like, you know something? I felt great until I started speaking to other people. People It's terrible. I'm back. It was quite a long hiatus, actually. That was Two months, I think, since I've done an episode. Yeah, you've been sorely missed. Wow. So I imagine you have all sorts to say to us now that is absolutely not baby-related. <laughs> no, I have nothing. Absolutely. For, for the listeners, I have had a baby. That's where I've been. Yeah. Just for anyone who doesn't have that context. I was laughing because, Becky, I, I don't know if I said this to you, but you were my first call back at work after six weeks of paternity leave, which was lovely. It was such an amazing time. My wife and I bubbled up with a baby. It was great. But Becky was my first call back and we had a brainstorming session. And I think there was a moment like 10 minutes in where I was like, Becky, I need like maybe maybe two more weeks before we have this yeah. type of conversation. Because I'm just in like nappies and feeding schedules and yeah. just trying to sleep every now and then. Well, the, the oh, yeah. good news is, Fraser, you haven't missed anything at all with, in relation to energy. No, nothing's happened. <laughs> so, nothing's not, happened. Not a jot. Uh, nothing has yeah. happened. All been quiet. Same, same as it ever it's, was. It seems like it. I, I even took the full six weeks off social media, and I'll tell you, nothing will make you regret bringing new life into the world, like visiting Twitter after six weeks. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, it's, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's been a road. I'm afraid to say you have missed a tremendous amount. Um, yes. And Becky and I have done our best to kind of wrap our heads yeah. around it. But I'm hoping, have you kind of plugged into, like, as we speak, it is the Labour Party conference. Mm-hmm. We had the Conservative Party conference last week. And prior to that and during it, we had a slew um, of, of news. None of it particularly good if you are um, pro-climate action. Have you been able to follow any of it? Yeah, yeah, mostly mostly up to speed. The Conservative conference was a, a bit of a, a roller coaster as well. You know, a, a governing party conference that very much felt like a, someone preparing for opposition as much as anything, I thought. But mm. not great for net zero, following the trend of sort of conservative messaging on net zero recently. And Matt, you actually, I believe you called this a little while ago, that kind of net zero culture war in the run-up to whenever the next election might be. We're, we're in it. I'd love to take credit for it, but we I was simply quoting Chris Stark on our pod back in, ooh, I want to say January 2021, I think, Becky. Oh, was that it? was a long um, while ago. And he said exactly that. His fear was that net zero was going to be the next focus of the culture wars. Once we kind of done, say done, once we'd moved through Europe and we moved through immigration, the next big wedge issue would be net zero, and here we are. It's, uh, yeah, prophecies come to pass. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But but uh, silver lining, we hope, that that leaves a lot of space for other parties to uh, fill that void and to present themselves as the answer for climate action. So, um, you know, lots of, well, it's difficult. As we're speaking, there's news literally trickling through. So we'll have to do something on this in a week or two's time once we've digested it, but... Labour, it seems, at present, seem to be trying to occupy some of that space and are owning that net zero badge, looking, for example, to reinstate that 2030 ban on internal combustion engines. Um, But there's a lot of devil in the detail. So we can't really speak to that yet. Mm -hmm. But fingers crossed, one of the parties has a hold on this. I think so. And I think it's that that while while this has been the messaging from the Conservatives, if you look at even the most recent polling, as in in the last week or so, it's not cutting through in the way that I think they hoped it to. It might, you know, galvanise a few people that are very anti-net zero, but it's not cutting through generally. And I think this is such a big opportunity, such a big open goal uh, for Labour to take that kind of, you know, transformation, Green New Deal by the horns. The big opportunity is social economic transformation. We know that the energy transition... Uh, necessitates if we want to get it done and do it well. Um, I think there's a big open goal there. And I hope, I'm ever, ever hopeful that Mm. that that's the way we go. But also something that's happened within that, Becky, something close to you as well, Mm. is discussions or or sort of the the topic of of fairness is higher up the agenda than it ever has been before. It is, and I find it such an interesting space, particularly around how a lot of these issues are framed, because, you know, and I I think back to the episode we did a few episodes ago, looking at water and clean water Mm. and how, you know, we had Hugo Tagholm on the show and he was talking about how, you know, when you kind of talk to anybody, everybody's in favour of this. This is just an issue that doesn't seem to be divisive in the same way. And I think when it actually comes down to it and you talk to people, actually fairness comes through as something that everybody seems to want. That came out very strongly from the uh, the previous sort of uh, climate assembly work mm. back in, ooh, was that back in 2020? It was a wee while ago anyway now. Mm. Um, and, and the citizens' juries that we've seen run since. Like fairness comes across consistently as a key theme. Um, and a lot of the ultimate ambitions of where net zero could take us is something again that's that's very popular like nobody doesn't want better jobs nobody doesn't want cleaner air you know 
addressing a lot of the things that actually we're trying to deliver, but it feels like we just get stuck on some of the the details of how we get there. And it feels like actually it's just become a bit of a mechanism to bash the other side with Mm -hmm. rather than looking through at what we're ultimately, I think everybody's trying to work towards. I've been doing a fair bit of thinking about this. And my sense of it is if you can squeeze a policy through the prism of whether it meets four aims, one is to cut carbon emissions, two, to cut costs, three, create jobs, and four, improve energy security. There are a fair few policies out there that do this. And the obvious one, the really, really obvious one that meets all of these criteria is around domestic energy retrofit and improving the efficiency of our homes. can cut emissions. It can cut energy bills and by extension, potentially system costs and the waste of energy there. Create jobs. I mean, we need every single street in the UK to be retrofitted, give or take. And to improve energy security, because if we're using less, we're you know we're less sort of leveraged or on the hook for imports as a as a nation that that, that does sort of you know in, in not pride itself, but is unfortunately a net importer of of energy. So um, I'm hoping as we we follow this Labour conference throughout this week that there's there's stuff there because it was absent, completely absent, really, from the Conservative conference. And they could have hit all four of those and probably still met many of the key criteria of your average centre-right voter, actually. Well, watch this space, mm-hmm. I guess. But yeah. <laughs> I'm, hoping, I'm hoping common sense prevails somewhere along the line. I think yeah. Oh, I don't know. I think that's very, yeah, very <laughs> So, yeah, call, call, call it as it is. But there's also been uh, other news. Becky, you've noted here a um, report out by the UK Energy Research Centre on, on low-carbon technology uptake and uh, issues around fairness and demographics there. Um, yeah. Anything you wanted to note? Because obviously the theme of today is, is, is bang on for that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Fraser brought it up, but I just think, you know, so much of, we talk about net zero and so much of the transition and the successes that we've seen have happened a little bit behind closed doors for a lot of people. So, you know, we've actually done a brilliant job at decarbonizing our power system, mm-hmm. but most of that people may not be hugely aware of. I mean, a lot of people might be aware of, you know, the wind turbines off in the distance, but ultimately a lot of that's happened kind of at quite a large scale. But the transition that we're looking to see moving forwards is going to feel a lot more things closer to home. And we've talked about it on the show before, right? The switch to electric vehicles, the shift to clean heating, the need to retrofit our homes. So and a lot of this relies on the uptake of these low carbon technologies that sort of encompass the changes that we need to make. Um, And so, of course, thinking that through, it's really important to understand how that's going to happen across the UK. You can't just have that happen amongst a small group of households. This is something that needs to happen in a widespread way. And the UK Energy Research Centre has just done some new work really showing actually that there's quite a lot of unfairness in the way that these technologies have been taken up and you know Fraser you'll be more than familiar with this because you looked at this in a lot of detail for your PhD around solar and this report looks at kind of a, a broader array of technologies and seems again that you tend to see the adoption focused by white people by people who are more highly educated people have higher incomes and there are issues again around age, gender, ethnicity. So at the moment, the policies that we have are not supporting that equitable Mm. uptake. And I think that's something that we really need to think quite seriously about if this is going to happen at large. So how do we need to see those policies evolving to support that? 
I feel like you've got to say something on this race given that you've spent your entire <laughs> PhD on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, my PTSD, uh, my PhD uh, <laughs> looked at this. Um, yeah, I looked into this a lot, but also it's sort of towards the latter stages was informed by work that we'd done, as in collectively, the, the three of us with Stephen Knox and also work that you've done separately, Matt, uh, with with other, I believe it's with you, Kirk, as well, around the kind of social dimensions of this, of of retrofit in particular, but it's it's relevant right across the board. And that the way that we've predominantly tried to get people to install solar panels, heat pumps or whatever, has been with grants and subsidies so far, which is all well and good. But invariably, that means that people who are familiar with accessing grants and subsidies with those kinds of policy processes, people who own their homes are straight away advantaged. So you see it with solar panels. We saw it with the renewable heat incentive as well, that there tends to be a big socioeconomic gap between the people who benefit from these type of policies and the people who don't. As Becky mentions, the, the key thing here is, as we're now getting to crunch time on net zero, it's not enough to just assume that the middle classes will borrow or buy us out of, of the climate crisis. We're thinking much more about how do we get everyone along in that transition, accepting that there's a role for people who can afford it and who are minded to, uh, to, to uptake as far as possible and start to bring those cost curves down because heat pumps are still expensive, but they're, the prices like solar when in sort of, you know, the 2010s, prices are starting to plummet. We're starting to hit that point, but we're still not quite there yet. What that means is we really need to wrestle with this idea of fairness, who benefits, and how we can get everyone involved in this transition so that people ultimately aren't left behind resenting the net zero transition full stop. I'd agree. And I think maybe the only thing for me to add is exactly, you know, which, um, in terms of wealth, which demographic we're kind of looking at here. And um, you know, you have those kind of relatively well-off, that sort of middle-class owner-occupier band, uh, first movers. You know, they pride themselves on having the EV and the time of use tariff and the solar on the roof, and they have the tenure to be able to do it. They have the money in their pocket to be able to either pay for most of it up front or, or, or the credit rating to be able to, you know, get the loan. On the other end of the extreme, you have those that uh, um, are maybe eligible for uh, support grants, whether maybe they could be living in social housing, but there, there are funds out there available to put this kind of, well, not say the EVs, but solar on council housing. Um, there, you know, there are there are opportunities and pots of money for that. It's that band in between that I think is ripe for policy focus. Yeah, I think Teresa may refer to them as the jams, the just about managings. Um, <laughs> if we remember that. And that band there, who are are above that threshold for targeted subsidy support, but below that threshold for being able to reach into their own pockets or, or, or be financed from elsewhere. That's what I would really like to see from the next government, um, or indeed this, to actually support the just about managings and to enable this type of technology to be available to them. Well, and I think I'd extend that as well, because as we're looking forwards, it's not just going to be about those technologies, but also about how they are used. So you don't use a heat pump the same way that you've used, mm. that you would use kind of a traditional mm. traditional gas boiler. Um, if you start to have storage in your home or solar or whatever, you're going to start to need to be operating in a slightly different way. Uh, maybe using energy more flexibly. Maybe starting to um, engage in some of these demand side response. You know, we just saw uh, last year we saw a huge trial looking at you know could customers reduce their energy use in certain time periods in response to financial incentives that sort of thing is going to become a lot more prevalent I think in the future and this notion of smart how do we use energy in a smarter way at home more Mm -hmm. flexibly at home people have a different role to play 
And I think that's an area where we also really need to think about those who might be, um, who might struggle with with that. So, you know, if I start to think about grandparents, like I, I could barely use the app to control when my EV charged <laughs> yeah. up, you know. And I like to think that I'm relatively technologically competent. Um, but I do think that we run the risk of a huge amount of exclusion, not just from a, you know, where people sit in their in, in regards to their finances, but also their their kind of capacity to engage in that digital world. And I guess that's what today is all about and Absolutely. what we're going to hear a lot more from from our guests. And I think at that point, Becky, no better segue then let's bring them in. Hi, I'm Mary Brooks and I am the Smart Energy Systems Director at Low Carbon Hub. And I'm Rachel Mills and I'm a Senior Policy Researcher at Citizens Advice. So excited that we've got you both here today for a topic that I think is very close to all of our hearts talking about, you know, the energy system, how it's changing, and particularly this shift towards smarter energy, smarter homes, smarter neighbourhoods, more local energy. It'd be great if we could just kick off by by talking about why there's so much attention here at the moment. And what do we really mean when we're talking about flexibility and smart? And why do we really need it now? So perhaps, Rachel, you could kick us off with that. Yeah, so I think at the moment, what's really kind of at the forefront of a lot of people's minds is the price of energy and how that's changed over the last couple of years. So I think right now it's reaching a sort of crunch point and for households what that really means is wanting to lower your bills. So it's about getting to net zero at the lowest cost. And I think what we mean by smart is your home being able to do more things that automatically takes into account of what the grid needs, what the household needs in a way that benefits both. And Mari, you've you've obviously had quite a lot of experience looking at this over the past few years, particularly some of the innovation projects you've been involved in. How is this sort of playing out when you're looking at things, you know, happening in Oxfordshire? We just touched there on what do we mean by smart? And one of the first things that we really discovered at Low Carbon Hub when we were working in this area was how difficult it is to communicate about that meaningfully. Um, so aside from kind of looking at technical things and what switches on when or switches off and, uh, you know, coordinating your uh, generation, consumption, storage of energy, actually just talking to people about what it means is quite hard. And I'm, I still don't think we've quite got that right, even at Low Carbon Hub, but but we are getting there. Just to, to follow up on that then, and, and when you've been talking to people, what what seems to be coming across i mean do you do you talk to people then about how how things are going to change for them how it how things are actually going to look like on the ground what is this meaningfully going to to be for them like how, how do you find it's most successful to get these ideas across to people that might not be familiar with them yeah if i can come in on that um I think what we found is using really tangible examples helps. And obviously that's hard right at the beginning because they don't really exist yet. Um, but we had a lot of success with community deep dive place-based projects where we basically said to communities that we knew, what is what are your challenges and would you like to work with us to find out how all this new technology and flexibility might be able to help? And so the difficulty was that it was quite wide open so we didn't 
necessarily know exactly where we were going when we started, which made it hard to talk about. But actually where we got to were some really clear, tangible examples and case studies of what we've done. And I think if you take two of them, uh, one was maybe what certainly in the energy sector people would think of as uh, immediately when they're thinking about uh, what a smart home might look like, whereas we were putting solar panels on roofs and batteries in the house and having those work in tandem to optimise the energy consumption of those households. But we were also trying to explore um, the extent to which if you've got solar panels on one house but not on another, you might be able to optimise that um, across those two households and, and have that shared benefit, whether it was financially between the households or if it was just trying to find a way you could put little small pennies that add up across the system into a community pot or something like that. So that was that was one way where we were trying to translate it. And then another example was where we had a group of people who were living in a block of flats that were owned by Oxford City Council. Oxford City Council put solar panels on the rooftop, but the benefit of those solar panels, even though in reality, if the residents were using power during the day while they were generating, the power would come from those solar panels, they weren't getting the benefit on their bills. And so we investigated a way in which we could provide incentives for the people in that block of flats to use power more during the day and then to give them a reward. So it's a little bit artificial, but actually it's the kind of thing that you could then um, make much more automatic with the right kind of electricity pricing and taking into account um, that the solar panels were there. And actually, we got a great response from the residents in that block of flats. And we got to a point where they were able to talk about what that meant to them better than we were. And Rachel, I mean, how is this reflected in the work that you've been doing with Citizens Advice? You've looked at quite a lot at this sort of journey that people have been going through. Yeah, absolutely. I think we've really looked at it as an overarching consumer journey, but with a lot of different journeys underneath that. So we've carried out research with people from groups that tend to miss out on sort of benefits in the energy system um, and the energy market. We spoke to people with uh, kind of young children in the household, disabled people, people with uh, English um, as an additional language, various groups, private rented sector as well. And in this qualitative research, we just found like the, the overarching finding really was just the diversity of what this means to people, what what benefits are to them, and so on. And it was really clear that that some people can more easily benefit than others. So I think a key challenge will be broadening participation in smart energy and helping those with barriers to benefit from like lower prices and get involved in flexibility offers. Yeah, I think that's so, so true. And I'm not surprised what would come out of research like that, actually, there's probably a starting point that's kind of um, accessible to a lot of the people that work in the energy sector on smart technologies or smart homes that is all about solar panels and electric vehicles and access to technology that um, costs money. And, you know, it's a particular kind of use case for that, which is fine because there are those people that will do that. And, and often they're the kind of people who will take part and sign themselves up for pilots of things and you know get going really quickly with it but what that means is that as we're designing products and services we might be biasing them to that particular audience and so one of the reasons coming back to the first question about why it's important now is because 
we're going to have such a huge um, physical transformation of the energy system in terms of having more renewable energy distributed across the whole of the physical network instead of concentrated in a smaller number of places. And so with that um, change in the physical system, we've got an opportunity to reconfigure all of the business model systems and you know the ways that people are charged and the way that people can, can access um, uh, technology that can benefit them at the same time. So we can make it a lot fairer it's as hard to do two really complicated things as it is to do one. Okay, so we're talking about smart and fair. Are there examples of certain groups of people that are less able to participate in this smarter, low-carbon world in our homes? Any key groups that we really need to attend to? And I'm particularly interested in what are the barriers to them adopting these technologies. So we will hear from some examples later on. But I wonder if we can begin with you, Rachel, about some of the barriers that you've come across. Yeah, we saw kind of at each stage of the consumer journey, there's a range of barriers. And what we did was we used the COMBI model. So um, that's a behavioral framework uh, that's used in a lot of analysis. So we categorized them under support barriers, uh, opportunity barriers, and motivation barriers. And the reason we changed the first one, capability to support, is we think it's more about problems, a lack of support in society rather than kind of someone's capability. So that was the reason for that. We saw a whole range of barriers. While many of them were motivation related, so kind of about actually wanting to get involved with this, actually being able to see the benefits, many of them were about a lack of support and um, a lack of opportunity to be involved. So for example, in the private rented sector, there's an opportunity barrier there. Um, a lot of people in the private rented sector, their energy tariff is controlled by their landlord or it's it's set up in one way and they don't have a smart meter. They don't want to ask for one. You know, there's all those just inherent barriers. And so it sort of creates a hurdle up front. So I think from our point of view, because we we kind of had to curate our trials to places where we had communities that were kind of ready to go, um, we didn't necessarily see those sorts of barriers playing out and we and we weren't testing across lots of different sections of society to be fair that was a limitation of what we could do but interestingly on that smart meter point in order to run trials with households we did need to have access to their data and there's a whole load of different ways you can go about doing that either via their supplier or you can put in an additional metering device that allows you to access that information but the barrier there is, one, having to go and work with a particular supplier when what you want to do is start working with people and maybe they've all got different suppliers. Uh, another was that in putting in an additional metering device, you then put an extra step into the journey and someone has to go into that person's home. And, you know, even just at that level, you're creating extra steps in the chain to do something that then trials whether you can actually do something well, you know. So, um, yeah, it's just adding adding steps, I think. The other thing I would say, though, that came out of our trials was that as Low Carbon Hub, as a partner on this project, we went in and we and we did, you know, we were really strongly wanted to do things that started in specific places and looked at what the benefits could be for communities and to ask those sorts of open questions and explore, uh, which is what we did. But actually, a lot of the mandate for the wider project for partners and for our local network operator 
was to test uh, what are called flexibility services, which is very similar to what we saw last winter run at national grid scale, where people could be rewarded for turning down their energy when they were called upon to do it, usually uh, weekday evenings. And similar to that, but instead of it being addressing something at a national level, it was about addressing something at a local level that the local part of the network operator needed to deal with. And so there was an underlying assumption in the way that that kind of much wider project was set up, that this was going to be the mechanism by which you could provide a financial reward to somebody to do something. And um, and that from there would flow all the benefits. And I think there's two problems with that. One is that um, certainly at the current level with kind of where we are with early technologies and people not being used to it, the transaction costs are really, really high. So you don't really get very much in terms of being able to reward somebody with um, some money off their bill. It's um, pennies. But, you know, nonetheless, people wanted to take part because they were interested in it. So that was OK. And we found other ways to make sure that, that it was you know ethical what we were doing in terms of a trial. But the other thing is that that, like the national scale, it's based around people having the opportunity to reduce their energy use. So if you already have minimised your energy use because you can't afford it and you've, you know, there's obviously the current situation, there's a huge amount of fuel poverty and there's a crisis around pricing. If you've already reduced that, then you don't get the benefit because you're being measured against your normal usage you're not being measured against the amount of usage the network operator has to assume you might use. So you're actually doing them a favour all day long, every day, but not getting rewarded for that. And I think that's, call it a barrier or an opportunity, but there's definitely a gap there in how we're describing the value and what our um, reference point is for it. That's a really interesting point, Mary. And it's something that we've heard so many times before is that reduction and efficiency just isn't valued in in markets as it stand at any at any real level just now and surely that's got to change but the, the question that that i had was around the smart meters point which we've kind of skirted around a little bit but something that we hear when we do more when we do communities focused work i hear it when i talk to sort of friends and family um is around sort of trust in smart meters i think the rollout of smart meters has we can mostly agree was was a little bit fumbled um, at the time, but trust in smart meters is pretty low. Trust in energy suppliers and the energy industry generally is really, really low. So in terms of getting people to uptake these new services, new technologies and stuff, is this something that you're hearing as an issue as well in your work around trust? And how do we go about overcoming that? Yeah, that's a huge thing that came out of our research as well. Just, I mean, on the the surface level as well, just the whole concept of energy flexibility, time of use tariffs, just the concept of sort of a company asking you to, to make these changes and turn down energy and be financially incentivized to do that. That felt incredibly new to people just as a broad concept. But yeah, there was also... Unfortunately, a lot of sort of, you know, people being quite doubtful, I suppose, doubtful of um, whether they'd actually see the return and, yeah, trust problems, especially when perhaps they'd had a bad experience of, of having a smart meter installation, for example. I mean, one of the things that, that we're asking for is a national information campaign backed up with um, independent and impartial advice. Um, so we see that as being really important for uh, kind of getting the word out about what flexibility is and what net zero means for people, um, but also backing that up with kind of trusted sources of information as well. 
thinking through some of those those challenges that you talked about, particularly around, you know, understanding what to do, trusting the people that you're learning about this from, seeing benefits. I mean, if I think about my own life, and I realize I'm like an N of one, and this is not you know, a massive experiment, but I trust my next door neighbors, oh, some of them. I trust my friends, I trust my family. And so I'm just, you know, I'm very conscious of that, that um, the importance of that, I guess, that peer communication. And I'm wondering, you know, Mary, particularly thinking through some of the work, you know, Low Carbon Hub is embedded in the community and you are engaging with communities. Do you see that as being a big part of what we need in the future? Do you see there being a huge role for community organisations or doing things locally and not just to maybe get those kind of the messages out there and support the learning and the understanding, but do you think that could also help make this fairer as well? I'd probably be a bit cautious about saying that I think there has to be a huge community role in total. Not everywhere is set up to do that necessarily. And we need to make sure that there's lots of different ways to roll out and make this transition happen and make sure that um, it's fair and there's benefits more widely. And we are privileged in Oxfordshire that we've we've got Low Carbon Hub and I love working for Low Carbon Hub because of what we can do, but um, not everywhere has got that set up. And actually one of the things that we want to look at in some of our future innovation projects is how we are describing the various things that we think we need to do like in Oxfordshire, not just Low Carbon Hub, but including us, and then um, assess how they might translate to other areas where you don't have exactly the same organisations or you don't have the exact same local authority set up. And so the institutions and their relationships look different, but from an energy system perspective, how can they fulfil those functions in their own way? But that said, we have really seen a lot of ways in which we can play a role that I think will be crucial for making this transition happen and making the innovation happen and therefore demonstrating what can be done and hopefully to build that trust beyond just the immediate communities that we work with. We have an existing trusted relationship with communities, but part of what we did in the last four years was, as we were designing these trials, was to think through quite deliberately what the ethics of that was to make sure that we weren't going to be doing any harm, that you know we weren't um, bringing people into an experimental world where suddenly they would be left worse off. You know, we rest on that trust we've got with communities and we can sit in between them and a network operator or a supplier and we're all holding each other to account, but we do play quite an important role in the middle where we can go in and put our community hat on and say, no, that's not okay because this is the perspective of those communities when we are in a room that they won't necessarily get into or not so easily. And we want to make sure that we're involving as many different groups as people as possible. So so again, we need to we need to make sure that that's done with some care and not done to people. Yeah, I, I would agree that, yeah, there is this need to just start doing the doing. Um, and that's really kind of where the value of these uh, sort of innovation trials and so on come in. And I think it's a really fine balance between protecting people who maybe like it is more difficult to get these products right for them but then also you know involving them in a way that means we can kind of learn and not exclude them from the from the offshoot does local in your minds and sort of grassroots community-led could be not just community-led could be local council with a combination of other local stakeholders in your mind does do these have a key role to play in actually delivering and financing 
and operating these projects, more so than potentially we've seen so far from renewables in the UK. Um, because at, at the moment it feels like, you know, it's still extremely niche if, if these local organisations and communities are, are organising themselves around renewables projects. And in my mind, I still can't quite work out whether Smart has a bigger or smaller role to sort of facilitate that galvanising of, of a community and a, and a local people. It's a really tough question. It's a really tough question because it's quite a leap from where we are, I think, to having a much greater scale, uh, as in um, a larger number of local-led initiatives. And do we really expect that that's going to suddenly pop up and flourish from lots of places? And you touched on the fact that it could be, um, say, a local authority or someone like that that's perhaps galvanising things or taking on a, some sort of um, facilitating or um, convening role. And I think there definitely is a need for um, that kind of facilitation. We know that local area energy planning is something that is coming the way of local authorities and that many of them are very actively looking to get into that space. Um, probably some kind of better prepared than others, no doubt. But there's been a lot of talk around that and no one quite knows what it means exactly yet. But um, <laughs> but but there is something happening there. From the outside looking in, it feels like Smart is being framed very much in the way that micro-renewables were in the past or still in the, in the present, that it's something that kind of happens at the household and then there's a big skip kind of to that distribution network operate and that kind of level and kind of misses out that potentially that local level. And it feels like Smart is an opportunity for more of a local footprint. But my sense of it is that it's kind of being, I'm not saying this is right or wrong per se, but it's being adopted very much by these you know, energy utilities like Octopus and Ovo, and it's kind of at the, the granular level of the household, and they're kind of aggregating those together and then presenting that as flexibility to the grid and milking value from that. And it's kind of missing out, really, some opportunities, whether these are microgrids or, as you say, kind of grouping together of households and making them think about balancing that, that grid at that level. Mari? Yeah, no, absolutely. So I think that's definitely where the opportunity that we see is. That's not to say there aren't opportunities with the kind of more national, nationally aggregated services. It seems unlikely that they would get into or target that local scale balancing because you need to have a critical number of um, customers all signed up with you from a supplier perspective for those approaches to work. However, if you're in a community and you want to decarbonize fast, faster than perhaps national targets or just at that pace, then I think SMART is incredibly important because we've got a real challenge in terms of how we are going to have a, a, a network that is um, fit for purpose as we electrify transport and as we electrify heating. And that is going to increase the amount of energy that's consumed and used right at the very edge of the network um, compared in, in terms of electricity uh, compared to what we have right now. So overall energy use goes down because uh, we're electrifying things and it's more efficient. But electricity use goes up because we are using more of more electricity to, to cover lots of different parts of our energy system, whereas now, obviously, transport is largely fossil fuels. 
heating is largely um, gas, fossil fuels. So if as a community you want to say, great, let's go, we want to decarbonise and do our bit, or even better, we've got the ability to, to go fast and, and therefore, you know, go faster and harder than some other places maybe can. So we'll, we'll get crack on and do that. And what that involves, if you are switching to heat pumps and switching to electric vehicles, is that you're going to increase the amount of electricity that you need in your little bit of the network. And the network might not be ready to send you all that power from somewhere else. So if you can generate locally, happy days, you can generate locally, you can use the power locally. But then we come back to your exact point, Matt, those things have to be balanced. And they have to be balanced within your little bit of the electricity network because there's points in the network at transformers, substations, they're called. But anyway, there are points in the network where you basically will have a bottleneck and you can't get enough power through or you might be generating too much locally and not using it at exactly the right time and you can't get that power back out. And that's what breaks the system. So smart is the answer to that problem um, and would allow pockets or islands within um, our electricity network of cables to decarbonise faster than you know than they would if they waited for that to be upgraded by somebody else. And it also saves money on the network because you can reduce the cost of upgrading those network points or you can defer the time till it so it can happen later, which also reduces the cost. Yeah, and agreed agreed on my side as well that there's a real opportunity for local groups local coordination of some of these benefits is really helpful because you know it's a lot more tangible for someone to realize the benefits and conceptualize them in the first place if it's in terms of you know the the wind farm that they can see off the coast or whatever to have it sold to them as kind of you know coming from there and using kind of you know the flexibility that they that they supply to the grid then gives them that benefit straight away that that just is a lot more tangible to people I think so the more that um and if we can harness that the better and I think we have to think of also the context of changes coming in the next few years um in terms of how energy is priced across the country so that's all up in our up in airs at the moment whether there's a move towards more locational pricing which could create a big incentive for local communities to to start doing these projects or something similar. We don't know yet, but there's there's big changes potentially on the horizon which could make it all a lot more easier. Just to come back quickly on that, actually, it's it's made me think of um, something else and kind of wrapping back around to a point we touched on earlier, which was about that barrier of support. And something that emerged in all of the trials that we did was a need for a supporting role for communities. So even where those communities were quite engaged and up for doing things, actually um, they needed um, an organisation to kind of step into a coordination role to help translate energy system things to them or to help join up or find the right people to talk to, whether it was local authority people or someone within the network operation side. And that's something we really want to explore further because I think it's, I think maybe jury's out on whether that's a function that we would need forever in the energy system. But I think as part of this transition, our experience certainly says that you do need some kind of coordinator role to to help galvanise that and to help make the, to enable that to happen. And in particular, to translate things like regional carbon targets or even the national ones down to a much smaller area 
not just to translate those down, but to turn that into real action. What is the project that you need? If you want to use smart, does that mean you need a community battery? And is that how do you even go about understanding what that means and how you might do it? I think there's a lot kind of was is a whole systems challenge, as we know, and that really kind of wraps back around to some of those other points that we talked about at the beginning. There's so much that we could keep talking about. Um, and I think that this is it's such an important conversation and, and clearly there is a lot that we still don't know about the right way of doing this but there is a lot that we're learning along the way and so I just want to thank you both so much for for explaining and you know sharing some of your insights really enjoyed the conversation you are both welcome back anytime thank you so much it's been a pleasure yeah thank you it's been a pleasure really interesting what a great chat with Rachel and Mary But before we go, we thought we'd give the last word to a couple of people who Citizens Advice have been talking to as part of their research. So here are some thoughts from Lisa and Robert. I think it's being able to sort of control things via your voice or the app when you're on the go. So you do need your heating on, but you're not at home. You can just set it and it's there for when when you do get in. Just like the ease of things, I think. Voice controls, you can control them via an echo or something, then that's even better because you can just tell it what to do and it'll just do it for you. Making sure things are turned off or, you know, shut down correctly or whatever, because the device has done it for you. I've got Asperger's syndrome, so that makes it even more harder for me to actually understand, you know, how to sort of like set up smart technology or a a router, you know. It makes it that much more difficult and that much more daunting and that much more off-putting. I feel kind of excluded. It's all confusing and I kind of feel sort of like somewhat kind of alone and isolated when it comes to sort of new technologies and and smart technology. Powerful stuff there. You've been listening to Local Zero. If you've enjoyed this episode, please do suggest us to people you think might like it. Word of mouth is a very powerful tool. And if you're feeling generous and you listen on Spotify, as I do, please take a second to rate our podcast five stars, of course. And if you listen on Apple, please leave a review. This helps Local Zero climb the charts. And if you haven't already, do take a minute to find and follow us on X at Local Zero Pod to get involved with the discussions there. Also check out our website, localzeropod.com and listen to our back catalogue. And you can also email us at localzeropod at gmail.com if you want to share some longer thoughts. And finally, remember to get in touch with us to say why you enjoy Local Zero and how you've used it in your work or life as we strive to secure funding to keep everybody's favourite local climate action pod going. But for now, thank you and goodbye. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.